coming up on the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. And red meat's vilified. People are switching more and more and more to chicken and pork. Mm-hmm. And chicken and pork, unfortunately, again, how they're being raised currently, 99%. And yes, even the pasture-raised chicken and pork are fed corn and soy, which unless yeah. you're growing the corn and soy on your farm and then feeding it, like, again, this is a, this is a system that just is not sustainable by any means. You're growing these enormous monocrops, which are just one species of plant over an enormous swath of land that destroys biodiversity, rapes the soil of nutrients and causes enormous problems down the road. And so you're doing that to feed these animals. Again, even if they're pastured, free range, heritage, whatever, the highest quality you can get, they're made on a system that is inherently not regenerative. Like I I don't have any examples that I know of that are regenerative pork, regenerative chicken. So that label to me is confusing. Hello, and welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I'm Brian Grin, and I'm here to give you actionable tips to get your body back to what it once was 5, 10, even 15 years ago. Each week, I'll give you an in-depth interview with a health expert from around the world to cut through the fluff and get you long-term sustainable results. This week, I interviewed Dr. Anthony Gustin. He's the founder of Zero Acre Farms, Perfect Keto, and Equip Foods. He's also the host of the Natural State Podcast and the author of the best-selling book, Keto Answers. We discussed how seed oils are causing obesity, inflammation, and chronic disease, along with the issue with chicken and pork, importance of regenerative agriculture, what's the deal with fiber, what we can learn from the Hadza tribes where he visited, and also his one tip to get your body back to what it once was. I really enjoyed interviewing Dr. Anthony Gustin. Hopefully enjoy it as much as I did and have a great day. And thanks so much for listening. All right. Welcome to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. My name is Brian Grin and I have Dr. Anthony Gustin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you coming on from Austin, Texas and um, excited to have a fellow keto, keto, keto member or a former CEO, founder of Perfect Keto. Um, and, uh, maybe perhaps tell the audience a little bit about your background, how you got into sort of the health and wellness space. And, and, uh, so they just have a little bit of a background. Yeah. I think that started with me being super fat and sick when I was younger, Chicago guy, you probably know Midwest is not the healthiest place, especially when you're on the suburbs or beyond. And that's where I grew up in Minnesota and Mm -hmm. just super unhealthy, super fat, super sick. Knew I didn't want to live that life and sort of turned that around myself when I was young and knew that I just wanted to be dedicated to helping other people do that. I didn't know many other options at the time. So I sort of fast tracked to wanting to be doing more preventative work, working with athletes and things like that. So got my uh, master's in sports rehab and doctorate in chiropractic. Um, when I was dealing with a lot of patients in San Francisco, had a couple of clinics there and then started launching a lot of information online, building a little bit of an audience there. And then couple different companies. One's Equip Foods, still active, and then also Perfect Keto to just help people with bridging to a ketogenic lifestyle in an appropriate way. So sort of creating solutions for people, a lot of information on that. And yeah, it's just always trying to figure out how I can best help people and helping myself learn and, you know, creating new ways to do that. And so, I mean, I think that's, that thread has gone a bunch of different places. We can dive into wherever you want, but um, Mm -hmm. sort of more recently into really into regenerative ag, got a farm myself here in Texas and I'm starting up and just really looking at, man, if we ignore the, the health of our soil, 
which is, we're just screwed. And I think that like, you can do all the health biohack stuff all you want, but man, if we're not taking care of this stuff, we're, I'm, there's a, an expiration date. And so I've been really fascinated with the convergence between, you know, what people call a climate or environmental problem. I think of, I think of it more of an ecological problem of which we're an integral part an integral destroyer um, and how that relates to health. And so that's kind of like where my most recent focus is on right now of like, how do we integrate those things and help increase health, health span and the health of the population while also restoring ecology. So yeah, well, let's, well, let's way to say where, where I'm at now. <laughs> no, thank you. I let's go down that, that road as far as um, gen- regenerative agriculture and like what's going on currently with monocrop um, agriculture and how that's sort of destroying um, you know, our food system. So what, what have you learned just from your research and, and what, what can people take light of that they might not know? Yeah, I'm not a dogmatic person when it comes to nutrition. I've, I've been sort of involved in the real food slash paleo stuff. People call me a paleo guy to begin with. And then I was helping with people with ketogenic diet and it, people call me a keto guy. And like, I think I'm a little bit more, I, I'm certainly not a carnivore-ish person, but throughout the whole thing, I've just thought that, hey, these are, these are tools that people can use. Whatever works for you to reach your goals, totally fine. I think there's some non-negotiable things here. Like you should be eating real food, not processed food. So it's just very clear. Like if you're buying super processed and refined stuff made by factories, like it's, it's likely not going to be better for you than real food. And that I'll just, I, you know, nutrients matter. It's not a calories in calories out thing. There's, there's more than that. Mm-hmm. And as I've dug in deeper to this stuff, and this is where I think I get lumped in a little bit more to the animal based crowd. I have, and like I said earlier, I'm really interested in, can we grow nutritious food indefinitely? Yes, yes or no. Like, what does that look like? What do those systems look like? What do those farms look like? What do those processes look like? There is not one option that I'm aware of, of using plants to make nutritious food long-term for humans. Every, every aspect of farming plants requires external inputs to make the thing go. And what that means is that it's not a closed system and that you have to be trucking things from the outside. And you can't do that indefinitely. A lot of our natural resources, what people don't understand, it's much like a bank account. It's not, it's not an infinite supply. And so we're taking things from other places and bringing them on farms to do more plant-based agriculture. I don't think plants are bad or going to kill people like a lot of carn- carnivore folks do. But it, when, you, when you look at it from a, a perspective of, is this food system truly sustainable to make nutrient-dense food for people? The answer is absolutely not for a plant-based diet, which is extremely ironic given the position that the plant-based people have, which is that animals are actually the worst thing for <laughs> the planet when it comes to food stuff. So it's, it's as with almost everything you hear from mainstream media these days, is the, the opposite is, is true. Um, so it's been fascinating to dig into that because, and this is the part of, my farm of thinking about what are the things that people can do without a lot of external inputs. And like, even with animal agriculture, I think there's a lot of issues which we can get into, but that's kind of been my latest fascination of what is truly on a small scale, on a large scale, on a replicable scale, the sustainable, but only sustainable from just providing calories. What's sustainable for providing actual nutritious food. I think another enormous issue is that we've depleted our soils with the, the mineral content that actually needs to exist. Um, and we're now at a point where we are artificially, we're basically like spraying multivitamins on 
the, the soil mm-hmm. acting like that is the same as if humans just took a multivitamin ate Doritos that they have the same output. It's ridiculous. And so we're making all this artificial nitrogen and all this stuff from natural gas. It's like even more of an unsustainable thing. But yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll pause. I mean, I could, I could rant probably for hours about this stuff. I've been going nuts about it, but yeah, <laughs> happy for, to, for you to ask any questions you have about. Yeah. Is that, so is that part of the reason why you bought, bought a couple farms? Is it to go into this issue and try to figure out like what works best and, and, and solve this issue around, obviously huge issue around in, industrialization and what's happening to like our soil? Yeah. I mean, the way I learn things, whether it's nutrition, health or anything else is by doing it. And I, I don't know, I think that some people can just read books and learn. I like to get my hands dirty. And so I've been doing that literally, and it is a lot of work. And I think there's a lot of farmers who don't have the background that I have in business and marketing and health and all this type of stuff. And I don't see many people looking at it and I don't blame the farmers, but they're not looking at it from a point of how nutrient dense is this food? What is a nutrient content of what I'm what I'm raising. And I think that what you have happened is you have a lot of smaller farmers, um, over time where we have a lot of reasons that smart, that, that farms are getting smaller as large farms and ranches, family farms are broken up into smaller parcels and subdivided land costs is going up. More fences are going up and we have smaller and smaller plots to grow food as people, as that's happening and red meats vilified, people are switching more and more and more to chicken and pork Mm -hmm. and, Chicken and pork, unfortunately, again, how they're being raised currently, 99%. And yes, even the pasture-raised chicken and pork are fed corn and soy, which unless yeah. you're growing the corn and soy on your farm and then feeding it, like, again, this is, a, this is a system that just is not sustainable by any means. You're growing these enormous monocrops, which are just one species of plant over an enormous swath of land that destroys biodiversity, rapes the soil of nutrients, and causes enormous problems down the road. And so you're doing that to feed these animals. Again, even if they're pastured, free range, heritage, whatever, the highest quality you can get, they're made on a system that is inherently not regenerative. Like I I don't have any examples that I know of that are regenerative pork, regenerative chicken. So that label to me is confusing. Um, There's a couple small, like wild dumb farm is a really interesting example. They do a lot of forest raised hogs um, and they're, result in their nutrient profile, the animal actually looks like the animal should have. When you feed them all this corn and soy, it's bad for the environment. And again, this whole thing's connected. When it, typically when it's bad for the environment or ecosystem, it's also bad for our health, human health. So things are all reflected in the same thing. So when you feed these animals corn and soy, just like humans, they store a massive amount of polyunsaturated fatty a- acids, uh, omega-6 fats, linoleic acid particularly, um, which makes them extremely unhealthy. So it's just... It's not, it's not lost to me that, that, that system is the same. Like no one's looking at how can we raise healthy chickens or pigs? No one's like, we have models on cattle and it's great, but it takes a lot of land to graze animals. And so I'm more focused on how can small farms produce a lot of nutrient dense food. Mm -hmm. Uh, Curious of if we take corn and soy and feed it to a batch of chickens or pigs, while simultaneously take another batch of chickens or pigs and feed them no corn and soy and locally milled grains of whatever, or any sort of supplement. And the reason you need to do that is because the animals, if they aren't given feed, the carrying capacity 
for them is dramatically lower. It's not the case for ruminants. So the carrying capacity of land, and let me know if this is too much of a, of a, of a deep dive. <laughs> no, this is good. I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get into the pork and chicken issue because I, I don't know, you tell me chicken is, and has been on the rise as far as it seems like we've consumed more and more of it over the years. Exponential increase, yeah. And uh, is, that, is that because it's so it, it's less land intensive and it's cheaper um, and they can make better margins selling it? Is that part of it? Yeah, the vilification is, of saturated fat and red meat has a lot to do with it. Yeah. Um, and then the, yeah, the industrialization of the food supply system. So we're making this basically free grains. And th- with chickens, again, even the pasture ones, 99.9% of them are this one breed, one breed called Cornish Cross that are bred specifically and have been bred over the last several decades to get big and fat and thick on specifically corn and soy. So if you feed them anything else, they'll essentially get sick and die and they won't get to, to weight quickly. What and should they eat? This is a good question. I mean, the, like, where did the chicken come from? It's jungle fowl. So it should be up in trees. It should be in jungles. And how long does it take to get to weight? And we can talk about this with pigs as well, wild boar, et cetera. There's a lot of differences here, but it take, it would take probably about a year for a chicken to get to maturity which would be about one fourth or one sixth the size of a Cornish cross breed, which is what, again, 99%, even the pastured birds are, which get to wait in about six weeks. And so you're, and again, six times larger than what you would get out of a normal chicken. And again, it is not the farmer's fault here. So don't go say, Oh, these people are misleading us. It is literally the industry is now pegged to this industrial system where people are demanding chickens and farmers are trying to do the right thing. It's, it is infinitely better for a farm to have a chicken on a, on grass, even if they're fed corn and soy, than to have chicken inside raised on concrete right. for a variety of reasons. It's better for the soil, get the manure out there. It's better for the animals. It's better health wise. It is better for sure. But again, at the end of the day, we're not asking the question, is this growing the healthiest food? Is this species appropriate for the animal? Is this healthy food for humans to eat? Is this a sustainable way to actually grow food? Which again, maximal irony that the vegans focus on grazing animals, which is like literally the only sustainable food source we truly have as a problem. And even in animal agriculture, they're, they're not the worst. So, so is, would you say right now until things change, you should, pro- you should probably avoid pork and chicken altogether? I think the, I think the best thing to do is if you want pork and chicken to talk to local farmers and ask them to do corn free, soy, soy free and ask them to test their fatty acid levels. Cause I think that will help start to get the movement of people switching to corn free, soy, soy free blends and starting to use more or, organic slash locally milled grains. And I think that like, for example, Wildham farm does a lot in like, they use a lot of whey, for example, to feed the pigs, which what, is a lot company is this? W-I-L-D-O-M, okay. Wild M. And they make, they're the only company that I know of, a farm that they're in Maryland that does, that has produced a pig with species appropriate linoleic acid levels. And they do it by like, they basically let them forage in the forest and then supplement them. Cause you need to, to get the pigs to wait. If you were just to have a free, truly free ranging pig, you would likely need, so carrying capacity is if you have a plot of land, hundred acres, say, 
you only have so many animals in that plot of land before the ecosystem will be degraded. And then you start reversing the population, but there's sort of like this equilibrium mm-hmm. that you get. And for hogs, like it's different per region, but that's probably like 30, 40, 50 acres per head. And so if you have an 80 acre farm, I think that's, that's what there is. There's is what are you raising three hogs a year. It's ridiculous. And this right. is what wild hogs do the same that they roam all over the place. And so you have to bring, if you want to raise these animals on a smaller operation, which you need to actually grow food effect- effectively, I mean, look outside anywhere, like the fences, roads, et cetera. You can't just like, we can't rely on wild animals anymore, unfortunately, but they use whey from like a local dairy mill that they have all this extra pro- stuff. And so I think like using food waste intelligently to feed animals is actually a great thing, especially when it comes to chicken and, and pork. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think that like, by far the best thing you could do to support that is instead of just avoiding it and voting with your dollars, ask the farmer, like I you know, built a little website, go to, uh, I think it's farms near And it's again, beta version now. So if there's some hiccups, don't get mad, but th- there should be several thousand small farms there. So go there, put in your address, it's 100% free and then find your local farm and go talk to them and see what their operations like. Yeah. And ask them to do something different. There's a farm um, 45 minutes west of me that I go to uh, and get raw milk, uh, and they have a lot of other things. But you know, there, even in Chicago, you can find places um, that uh, some local farms and and ask and go to the farmers market and things like that. Um, why don't we touch a little bit on seed oils? Uh, I know I see you post quite a bit about seed oils, and you just talked a little bit uh, about them during a, a presentation you did. Um, maybe touch on the issue we have with seed oils as far as linoleic acid and how that's just be pretty much in almost every food you see out there. Yeah. So the question is what, what is a seed oil? And that this definition is different depending on who you ask. Seed oil in my mind is anything that you're, you're taking something that people generally do not eat. Humans can't digest and you're using massive machinery and refinement to crush it into a fat. Uh, and man, there's so cottonseed, corn, canola oil, rapeseed, grapeseed, sunflower, safflower, soybean, rice bran. Like these are all typical seed oils. There's some ambiguity then of like, what about olive oil? Well, technically it's seed oil because they're pressing the pit. Um, what about avocado oil? Technically it's a seed oil because they're pressing the pit again. Uh, what about palm oil? Well, that's technically a fruit oil, um, but there's some major environmental issues there. What about coconut oil? Well, again, it's a fruit oil, so it's a little bit different, but the main reason why these are bad is not even just the machinery or the refining process. For example, if you take a coconut and put it through this same process, because the fat's so saturated, it's stable and right. there's no issues with it. It's, it's the unstable Heat. omega-6 fatty acids, linoleic acid in specific. So when you think about protein, there's a bunch of different amino acids that make up protein. And the same thing with fat, there's a bunch of fatty acids that make up fat and there's one in particular that it's totally fine if we get it in regular small amounts, small, like sing, low single digit under 5%, under 8% even, uh, I would say under 5% for sure of a food of, of, of the fat in a food being linoleic acid, okay. totally okay. fine. But when we eat species inappropriate amounts, just like with anything else, you can literally drink too much water. You get hypertremia and can die. The same thing here is when it goes out of the species appropriate bounds, 
you start getting a lot of wonky processes in biology. We used to eat, you know, one to 2% of this. These oils and fats now make up over 20% of our, of the average American diet. <laughs> and so we went from a fat, 0% of these fats and we got them naturally in things like, you know, animal fats will have typically one to 2% fat, you know, like a like tallow from a, a head of cattle will be like one to 2%, even in butter, cream, et cetera, it was like low single digits. Soybean oil, 70%, 60-70%. Sunflower oil, 75%. Grapeseed, rapeseed oil, same thing, very high. And then you start having this spectrum of amount of linoleic acid and olive and avocado are much lower, but they're still five to 15 times higher than what we should have. So they are about, you know, a good avocado or olive oil brand will be around 10 to 15%. Olive oils can range dramatically and go from actually like 10% to about 40% linoleic acid. Mm-hmm. Avocado oil, a study came out of UC Davis last year where 88% of avocado oil is actually soybean oil anyways. And so adulteration in those thing, or those places are, is, is rampant. Um, so linoleic acid is a problem. Uh, why is it a problem? Well, it basically breaks your mitochondria. So the powerhouse of your of yourselves, basically why your body runs the, the whole machinery, um, cellular machinery, it breaks, it leads to also independent of that pathway is a massive amount of toxic metabolites. And so people get really upset, the, especially the vegans online, you say, Hey, this food is toxic. And they go, well, do you know what a toxin actually is? That's not toxic. It's ridiculous. It's like there, there are literally entire research journals. I'm not talking about just like a, a, a one study thing, like an entire amalgamation and a journal of studies mm-hmm. on just single metabolites of downstream things of linoleic acid. We're talking things like 4-hydroxynonanol, 9-HO, 13-HO. There's hundreds of these metabolites that are processed that, again, in excess, your body can't handle the processing of these fatty acids. They become highly unstable. And they lead to these literally, literally toxic compounds in your body. So not great. Yeah, <laughs> not good. And these seed oils, a lot of times you don't, obviously you don't know they're in there, right? I think that's what makes it so toxic in the sense that, you know, you, you can't taste them really. Um, I'm assuming most 99% of the restaurants are cooking in these oils. Um, and at high heat, that's not good either, right? Causes oxidation and um, inflammation and things like that. Um, so is that the main issue? Would you say that, that, that the fact that people are cooking in these oils and then also like, why is it somewhat of a preservative? These, these oils in the sense, because like, you'll see, like, you'll buy something that you think's healthy. And then like one of the ingredients is like safflower oil. You're like, why is that in there? Is that, is that, is it somewhat of a preservative or is it just, no. no. Okay. Yeah. So, I mean, the thing about the taste, like you said, it's sneaky we have a built-in mechanism actually to detect when fats go rancid. It's called our nose. So when, when fish goes bad and this sort of like rotten fish smell, you smell, yeah. mm-hmm. everyone smelled that before rotten seafood. Yeah. You go, Oh shit, that is disgusting. I'm not going to eat that. You're repulsed by it. Every human, you don't have to learn that. That's it's innate to our biology. That is actually the polyunsaturated fatty acids oxidizing in fish. That's what you're smelling. It's not something unique to fish. It is just fatty acids that are in seed oils also. And so if you were to take a seed oil 
and not take it through the refining bleaching and then deodorization process, it would smell like rotten fish. Mm. But the thing is we bleach those, we, we take everything out and we process it in a way where we are removing the mechanism for us to smell that is rancid. So these oils can be sitting on your counter for three years or in a product or whatever and be completely rancid, which means rancid basically is the oils oxidized and extremely inflammatory at this point. So it can be sitting there completely rancid and like you, you won't know. We've taken out that defense mechanism, that alarm bell, which is insane. Yeah. And that allows it to be ubiquitous everywhere because it's this hidden ingredient that can be stable. And so pretty much everything else, and, and this is why I said before, like the processed food thing, like you can have something taste artificially amazing indefinitely. Like there, there's no, like you have no ability to relate with your biology. You have a piece of meat or a f- piece of fruit. I don't care if you're totally vegan, whatever. If it is out and it's getting moldy and gross, you go, oh, this is not like, I can tell with my eyes and my senses and taste and smell. This is not something I should eat. When you start processing food and get to this point, you remove those mechanisms and we have no way to tell anymore if a food's bad for us innately, which is challenging. But yeah, it's in pretty much literally every single packaged food at high amounts, every single restaurant food that you have. Like story I tell often is that I went to a restaurant in Austin. I think it was like last year, the year before. I think I saw New this. hip little cafe. Yeah. And I literally could not eat one thing without seed oils. They refused to make anything without oils. Really? Even you- this, hey man, can I get a steak? Nope. Marinating canola oil. How about you fry an egg with butter? Only have oil. Why are they you- why are they marinating it in canola oil? It's a great question. Because they have some <laughs> sauce they want to do. They I mean is it, la- is it yeah. They they prepare everything ahead of time. Right. And so everything is always made with this super cheap industrialized oil. At every, even even the super nice, fanciest restaurants you'll go to. Like this is a really nice restaurant that I'm talking about. This isn't some like dive place that yeah. cafe in the middle of nowhere. It's like downtown Austin, brand new hip restaurant. Couldn't right. eat a literal single thing on the menu. What about a salad without dressing? No, we pre-dress our, we pre-dress our salad. Hmm. Every single thing. I went down the entire menu. My fiance <laughs> laughed at me. Calling me a freak, but it's fair. It's fair criticism. Yeah, it's 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 you know it's sad. And and would you say that for most individuals, the the best way to take it to I guess be proactive is to just cook for yourself, obviously. I mean, I, I think if anything from the whole quarantine that we could take from is the fact that, I mean, at least my wife, my wife and I, we, um, we cooked for ourselves every day and night and we're not cooking in these oils. Um, what, what, I guess on that standpoint, what should people be cooking in? Not, not this stuff. For sure. I mean, you know, I, you say, can people cook in avocado oil if it's if they know the source and it's organic? Like, because I've I, I've heard, you know, obviously organic oil can stand higher heat, or coconut oil, it's you know, it's more stable. Are those those good options, or would you just say like ghee or tallow? Yeah, I think. I mean, I I want there to be as many options for as many people as possible. I'm, again, I'm not a dogmatic person. I don't think people should only be eating animal products. If you don't want to do that, that's totally fine. Co- coconut's better than avocado in my mind. Mm-hmm. You can even get, like, for example, the refining process is misleading. So you can get people to go, I don't want to eat coconut oil because it tastes like coconut and everything tastes like this tropical thing. I, I don't like that. Well, if you get refined coconut oil, all they basically do 
is like the refining process is like it, they just put it under heat and have steam come off and then the volatile compounds get released. So it doesn't taste like com- the coconut oil anymore. There's nothing bad with refining the coconut oil and then it doesn't taste like coconut anymore. It's a neutral fat to cook with. You can do that also with palm. Um, it's just, if it's RSPO palm response, responsibly sourced palm oil, then you have to deal with all the, of the ecological problems there. Um, but yeah, I mean, again, it's a, sl- it's a sliding, sliding scale here of the amount of um, linoleic acid in the food. And you can just Google and you can find it. Again, it should be low single digit percentages. And so coconut oil, I think is like one, one to 3%. Palm oils hot can be higher depending on how, it, how it's refined. Um, yeah, well, avocado butter. is better than canola oil. Butter is like one to 3%, tallow is one to 3%. And right. that's again, what you want. Um, coming from the keto days, like I just saw a lot of people also just unnecessarily eating too much fat. Like I, I just, I don't think people probably need to eat even close to as much fat as they should be eating. And like, this is reflected, I think in like truly grass fed, grass finished beef mm-hmm. or wild animals. I go hunting deer, elk or anything like this. Like these animals are so lean and there's very few animals who are extremely fatty that we've eaten over, over our health span as humans. And I think like when you have that, it's very much in places where survival is completely necessary. Arctic mammoth, walrus, et cetera. Right. You, <laughs> most people don't need an excessive amount of fat. I think that, yes, you can eat lower carb and it's really helpful for people to switch against carbs because they've broken their metabolism and their mitochondria. Again, I think due to the seed oil is not because of carbohydrates. And so keto can be a phenomenal tool once you have a broken metabolism, but the metabolism likely was not broken due to carbohydrates. I think it's a huge misconception. Yeah. So you're pretty much saying that the fat, the, there's, there's a rhetoric out there where people are just overdoing it when it comes to consuming fat and, you know, coming from the keto world, what was it like? It's like 75, 80% fat. You know, some people will, will put in their diet. Um, and I think, just, the, I think it's the added fat. So even when your people are cooking, it's like, Hey, let's throw half a stick of butter in here. It's, uh, I, I think, unnecessary. Right. Just because they're eating fat, I think they need to have an excessive amount of fat. And I just, I just don't think that's the case. I think most people are generally overeating. I think they're not getting enough protein. They're having too much energy and not spending enough energy. Yeah. It's almost, uh, you know, I had, um, um, we talked, uh, Dr. Ted Naiman, and, you know, he has this protein energy um, thesis regarding, you know, obviously prioritize protein. What would you say to the, the people who I know, um, not that I know you're not dogmatic, but like, I even get people today bring up like how, you know, excess red meat can cause like colon cancer and things like that. And, and, and so they're bringing up studies that were done and, and what would you say to those type of people? Just people who are concerned about colon cancer from yeah, eating from meat. Eating, yeah. Oh man, that's a rabbit hole where people have done much better work than I have on here. Um, I obviously like Paul is a good example. Paul Saladino is a good example, but from what I'm aware, these, these are massive epidemiological studies where people are just very unhealthy and they're saying, Oh, look, this person ate burgers. Therefore, and it's like incredibly unhealthy. Therefore that's causing this colon cancer. Like there's been no direct, there's actually been, I, I don't have the study on hand and I can look it up and send it to you, but there's been, there have been several studies that have pointed to more fiber leading to more colon cancer than less. And then when you remove the fiber, actually that incidence and treatment of a lot of these gut issues, including colon cancer go down. So, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, again, like 
do we think that we had a food that we've been eating for millions of years that would give us cancer early on? Like just this, this simple things that just blow my mind that people miss when it comes to nutrition. Like, do we think that saturated fat, something again, we've been eating for millions of years gives us heart attacks early on. Do you think breast milk has high amounts of saturated fat would kill us? It just like, it literally makes no sense to me. Yeah. No, I, 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 yeah, no, I, it, I totally, I totally agree. Uh, what about, I, I noticed you posted a little bit regarding getting back to linen, like acid, just a little bit. Um, what about like walnut and, and a lot, a lot of the nuts and the seeds, um, that have higher amounts of linoleic acid. Is that something that you just want to keep in mind and just not overconsume? Yeah. I mean, this is another thing of why, why would nature make foods that kill me? If, if linoleic acid's high in these things, why would nature make those? That's a good question. And I think the answer in my mind is these foods are extremely seasonal and extremely hard to acquire. Yeah. We're eating handfuls of them mm -hmm. every single day, all year round, no matter what climate we're in. Like I live in Texas here. There's, there's a lot of pecans, uh, and they fall one month of the year and they're extremely hard to get into and eat. And so I see all these animals walking around eating them I'm like, Oh, this is, this is clear what's going on here. You're getting fat for the winter time. And we know that these things lead to these linoleic acid for a variety of reasons leads to obesity. And so a lot of things in nature, I think people think, I mean, you get all the longevity freaks out there, the frail little guys who are don't ever eat meat because it causes mTOR spike and mm -hmm. all this type of stuff. It's like, yeah, some of these things are good to have transiently. And our biology has, has meant to preserve these mechanisms, but we have them unchecked all the time. And so stress is good short-term, bad long-term. Fat right. gain inflammation was likely very good short-term. And the plants and animals work together. It's like, okay, you produce this, this thing, it's getting colder out. I need to produce this nut that has linoleic acid in it because it's actually getting colder and the polyunsaturated fatty acids can work in the plant metabolism better. So if you get higher in latitude, you actually get higher amount of polyunsaturated fatty acids in the seeds because it's colder. So the plants need a more fragile fat to go around the plant metabolism. Hmm. And so the higher in latitude, the colder it gets, the more the animal needs to be fat during the winter time to survive. Right. And so it's kind of an elegant little pairing historically and evolutionarily, but we have, again, like we've taken out of there. And like, I, I don't think I'm a complete naturalistic fallacy guy where I think that everybody should be eating like only local seasonal or whatever. I think that that just, that's kind of been possible now, but you, you can't like disrespect the fact that like there, there could be a role to, to increasing inflammation and obesity short term. And it's not even obesity, it's just weight gain, which is like, pre it's preferred. It's a survival advantage for animals that have longer, harder winters. And so yeah. don't, don't eat for winter. It's kind of like, and unless you want, it's unless you're going to, again, have an energy decrease for several months and you want to gain a little fat for whatever reason, like that's totally fine. But just know that you're eating a food that's preparing animals for winter time all yeah. the time. That's a good way to state it because I just interviewed, I haven't published yet. Dr. Richard Johnson wrote the book, recent book, uh, nature wants us to be fat. And he, and he touches on how fruit and how, um, you know, these, these animals for hibernation, you know, they're eating a ton of fruit, um, high in fructose and getting fatter for a reason. Cause they're hibernating. Um, and so no, it was an interesting interview, but, um, did you visit, I noticed, uh, did you visit the Hadza? Yes, sir. 
what, what was the one thing that you'd say you learned? Did you go with Dr. Paul Saldino? Yeah. That- yeah. Him and I went together to have a hell of a trip. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. <laughs> what, what would you say you, one takeaway you learned from that trip? That all of our problems are due to our removal from our natural environment. And way more than just like, I mean, Paul, I think was very focused on physical health via what they ate, which I think is important, but I think that that is only to me one slice of what I consider health to be. I I know many physically healthy people who are miserable, right? Unhappy, have terrible relationships, hate their life, but Oh, great. I have a six pack. Cool. Hmm. Like, I don't know. I want the whole thing. I want the whole human experience and to, to see a human in a, in a natural human experience, instead of seeing the humans that I see in a zoo all the time was amazing. So that, I think that's the biggest thing of just like observing all of that. And not to say that like, that's the only way humans can or should le- live. I, I also think that there's a lot of extrapolation of, Oh, this one population, therefore right. all humans must do this. And I think that that's the beauty of nature is that, we're adaptable species that have thrived in many different climates. And like, I think that there, we could point to a lot of indigenous cultures that have eaten an enormous amount of plant foods and enormous amount of carbs and enormous amount of fat, and they all thrive. And so I don't like, it's just, it was fascinating to see. I think another big one is never trust science because every single paper about the Hadza bringing back to like digestive health, et cetera, microbiome, like we should model it has the most diverse microbiome. They eat hundreds of grams of fiber per day. I, it is, it, it's just a lie. It's just not true. And so there's now studies that cite studies that cite studies that cite studies that cite studies from this original one. And Paul and I have dug back and it was just an observational thing that they recorded. So they, they didn't have any, photos or anything. They just wrote in the, in the paper, Hadza eat hundreds of, of grams of fiber a day. Good dietary survey. Mm-hmm. Bullshit is absolutely not true. They, they, they couldn't do it even if they wanted to. And so now we have this quoted by probably hundreds of thousands of people or more. Oh, like we know this big thing about the African population that do this thing, like go there and tell me that they, they do this. Like, I, I don't, I've been, I was already a skeptical person after seeing that sort of ludicrous disposition of what the truth was from what has been quoted by many, many, many studies and regurgitated from that. Like just don't trust anything unless you see it with your own eyes. I mean, it's challenging, <laughs> but man, it was unbelievable how inaccurate those were. And so like, the question is, what was the motive? Why that, why did, were we, why was that put in a study? Was there an agenda that somebody was trying to fit a narrative and extra, like, I, I don't know what happened there, but yeah, that was shocking to me. Yeah. The whole fiber rhetoric. Um, which again, I don't, I don't mean that to mean that fiber is even inherently toxic for people or whatever. Like I, I, there, you could probably find some cultures that ate a lot of fiber and I, whatever, but it's right. not true in this instance at all, even close. Yeah. And um, I, and one of the things I know that, Dr. Paul Saldino has added into his diet is fruits and honey. What, what are your thoughts regarding that as far as adding that into, into, into people's diets? And I think they're great. And I think that if they fit for your goals, great. But again, it's like honey. Okay. 
at least in Texas, honey is available two times a year. Same thing as nuts. It's like, okay. Right. 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 Is there a, a natural thing that we're trying to, to tell, to tell ourselves here in Texas? Again, there are, there's fruit only available short period of time in the year. It's not all year. And so it's like a natural pulse style thing. I think it's impossible to think through like, even if it's eating locally, my genetics are from mostly Western Europe. It's probably like the, the most appropriate diet to have, but even still it's like majority of people are now, you have a Brazilian slash like parent with a Japanese parent making this kid who now lives in Alaska. It's like, how is this person supposed to eat? Like the genetics have been so crossed over so long where right. I think it's hard to say like, eat for your genetics, eat for your region. Uh, I like Costa Rica where Paul lives now it's there's fruit grows year round. And so I think it's a more appropriate thing. And I think that there's been some weird bastardization of fruit and genetic selection over time. But I think that if you're going to eat plant food, it's in carbohydrates is probably the best source. Root vegetables. I like, I do well with, um, Paul doesn't do well with. And so I think it's just, again, if you have some sort of a framework of, I think at least eat real eat foods that spoil eat stuff that goes bad right like when you think about what what it means to go bad and spoil it's bacteria wants to eat that and decompose it and return it back into the soil which i told before was like so important and if even bacteria doesn't want to eat the food there's probably an issue there like humans shouldn't be eating the food and so if you leave out some sort of bar or whatever it, it looks no different in five years from now than it does, does today probably should not be touching that thing. And again, like there's obvious exceptions to this. Don't need people to like, jump down my throat on this, but as a general rhetoric and framework to think about, like it's like, okay, let's think about local seasonal foods. It's where I am. It's probably going to be the highest nutrient density that you can get. Now let's start testing it out. Like what's important to you is your history that you have eaten a lot of seed oils and carbohydrates and have gotten metabolically broken. Well, okay. It might make sense to not do a lot of fruit. Are you just like a genetic freak like Paul and can eat whatever you want, even if whatever, without having any sort of physical differences and okay, then eat like whatever fits that. But ultimately figuring out what your goals are, what your health history is, what you want to, where you want to go. And then doing the personal work instead of like trying to find some sort of pariah online, mm -hmm. who's spouting nutritional advice, I think is really the bang for your buck is just like, do your own work, uh, which is the least appetizing for people, I think, but <laughs> right. People, people want to be told exactly what they should do. They're like, Oh, well, how should I eat this and that? And you know, yeah, there's some mainline rules, you know, good baseline rules. Like we've talked about already, uh, that everyone should follow, um, you know, obviously staying away from processed foods and seed oils and things like that, that just go without being said, um, or for some people, but what, I guess what, what have you, you know, obviously what have you learned about yourself and through self-experimentation, how, what is your, I like to talk about routine. So what is your typical routine, maybe eating and do you do some fasting or things like that? Hello. Lost you for a second. Oh, okay. No, I, my, my question was, uh, what's your routine like now, uh, just through, through while you've learned through the years, uh, for feasting and even for fasting and on a daily basis. Yeah. I mean, my situation's interesting i've gone through a lot of mold issues lately so a house i had in austin was didn't know i had a leak found out we caught all this mold so i've been doing this extreme mold detox symptoms mm -hmm. were crazy by the way i think this is a is an enormous problem that no, not enough people are talking about um again i think it's an unnatural environment thing we live in these hermetically sealed 
boxes made of weird chemical based stuff and then right. have water running through them and no, like it's really bizarre. Of course, problems are going to come from that. Um, and so my diet has varied a lot over the last couple of years just to figure out what works best for this mold detox thing. So I'm sort of like myself yeah. starting from square one a lot. And I think I've gone lower fat, feeling way better. So you eat more fat, your, your body's just recycling a lot of stuff. And a lot of the toxins actually, the mycotoxins and stuff stay in your fat. And so eating less fat. And I think here's a time where eating more plant foods makes sense because if you're eating more plant foods, your body wants to excrete it. You have all this fiber. You want to get stuff out of your body. And if I want to get stuff out of my body, it actually makes sense to eat more plant foods. So I've been doing that a little bit more, but yeah, I just, I'm, I'm still tinkering right now and figuring out, I'm, I'm not saying like 70% better from the mold stuff, but still figuring it out. But how did you know um, you had it? Oh man, it's been a, it's been a, a journey. A yeah. I mean, I think that for a while I thought I had, I was like, what is going on? Like the symptoms creep up over a really long period of time. So it was like fatigue, joint pain, mm. depression, brain fog. It's like, I would need to like sleep at 10 AM to take a nap. Mm. I was like, man, what the hell is going on? And like, you don't notice cause it's not like one day you're like this and one day you're not. It's, right. it's creeped up over a really long period of time. Mm. And then it's like, got this sense of like, man, I can't focus. I can't articulate clearly. Like if I were to be on a podcast, no way I would stammer. I wouldn't be able to focus. And it's like, I should, I need to get some stuff checked out. And I had done quarterly labs for a while. And I saw some numbers trending in the wrong direction, but it just didn't add up. thought I had allergies here. I thought it was hormone stuff. So I'd leave Texas and I'd feel better. And then I would come back and I'd feel like shit. And so, so oh. A lot of times, like the allergies, especially in central Texas are, are brutal. So I was like, oh, oh man, this is finally getting me like everybody else. And so I left and came back and stayed at an Airbnb, just an AB test. Like, is this valid? <laughs> yeah. And I felt fine. So something in your place. So you, yeah. I'm assuming you moved right away. <laughs> yeah, we got the hell out of here and then yeah. remediated. And it's fun. the place is fine now. But it's there's essentially four things to, to worry about. And I'm going to be doing some some talking about this and publishing some more information, but you essentially look at the source of mold and where it is and verifying that you have it in your house and then where it is and what types you have in your body and then how to get rid of it effectively in your house and your items and then how to get rid of it effectively in your body. Mm. So there's these four main things that you need to worry about, but there are people that do each one of them and no one communicates to anyone else. And 95% or 99% of people that do each one are completely misinformed and don't know what the hell they're doing. And so it's very challenging to get through this whole process. Yeah. Kind of I mean, knowing what I know going through it, it, it has been a nightmare. I've worked with dozens of people and have done my own research, still not a lot of answers and just a lot of trial and error. So I think it's like, it, it's a very new thing that people are getting on board with. And I, I mean, I talked to, Dave Asprey about this. He's been talking about this stuff for a long time. And it's just, it's one of these things where I, I remember when I first saw him talking about it and I thought he was overblowing it. I was like, oh, this can't be that bad, whatever. Yeah, it's just right. this old thing. And then I experienced it. And it, this is the worst I felt in my entire life physically. Yeah. And there's still such confusion of how to get out of it and get better. So, I have extreme amount of compassion and empathy for people who have chronic disease and they're firmly down the standard American 
diet rabbit hole and they're told, they go to their doctor, their doctor tells them, Oh yeah, just take this medication. I don't know. And they have, like, they're not plugged into circles like you or I are, where it's like, for us, it's common sense. Like, Oh, your environment, your diet and these things, lifestyle things. But man, it's, it has, it's so defeating. And it just like the depression leads to more stress, which leads to more sickness. It's like this yeah. negative loop. Snowball. That keeps it, is, it is brutal, man. And well, I'm glad you're feeling at least, you know, like you said, you're, you're back to about 70, 75, 70. 70%. There's some, there's some good days. There's some bad days, but overall, I mean, I stayed in a place in Santa Barbara a couple of weeks ago and stayed there for three or four days. And like, I knew every day I was like, work up the next day. This place has mold, had a headache. Next mm. day it was like brain fog and low energy. Third day was depression. And I was like, oh, this is like, this is how I felt every day for two years. Wow. So again, it's, it sucks. And I don't yeah. wish this on anybody. And you, you just don't know. I mean, most like it was something like estimated that 80 plus percent of, percent of homes in the United States have water damage and have likely some mold exposure. Mm. And so the question is how, how much can your body excrete it? What is your other lifestyle habits like? Does your cup just start overflowing basically? And then you start getting sensitized to everything in your environment. Cause you can have people where it's two people in the same house living together. And one is, and one gets sick and looks crazy compared to the other person. And for better or for worse, my, my fiance, she also had symptoms. And so we were in this together and it was something where we were able to understand each other, but I could see why if somebody's like, no, this environment's making me sick and the other person feels fine, how that would be a really tough thing to navigate. Yeah. Well, um, I'm, I'm just curious, was one of the ways to sort of remedy this or help it would be like some type of sauna, like an infrared or something and, and sweat and help you sweat a, a lot of the toxins out? Yeah. I mean, there's, there's a variety of things you can do to be supportive. Mm -hmm. um, that's been certainly one of the things that I've done a lot. Yeah. Certain IVs, certain binders, but this stuff is, you know, you can go too fast. So if you start liberating a lot of these mycotoxins and getting them out of, trying to get them out of your body, but they're just circulating around, they can make you sicker mm. because they're, they store in your fat and in your tissues. And so it's this, this long thing of like, you want to trickle them out over time and not have them all come out because otherwise it'll just destroy you. And so it's, it's a very individual approach. My fiance and I have, have had very different, we've had the same mold exposure same mold in our body, same mold remediation of the house, but our getting the mold out of our body part, that fourth step has been wildly different. Mm. We basically respond to these at opposite things at, at different rates too. So this again is why it's so complex and really challenging. Well, we could probably do a podcast on that alone. <laughs> oh man, there's a whole operation about this stuff. I mean, it's really in depth and there's a lot to learn. And yeah, I, I feel really bad for anybody who's who's in the midst of this process. It's, it's not fun at all, but there is hope. I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of people who I've met in this journey of, I mean, I, I tried to find for a long time. What happens is you get sensitized to local allergens. And if you get sensitive to mold in Austin, it's common that you also then get high aller allergies. Mm -hmm. So there's been a lot of people that I've known who said, yeah, I got mold and I had to basically move away from Austin. So I was on mm -hmm. this mission for a while just to find anybody who has had mold exposure here who stayed here mm -hmm. and then I find a couple of people give me hope. So mm. if I can get through it here, anybody can get through it. So it's just, wow. it so it's okay. So it's a, a lot, a lot have to do with Austin, not necessarily just 
you, the place that you lived in, the house that you lived in. It was- there, there are regions that are higher in yeah. mold exposure than other places. Um, okay. Here, it's just so common because it's really humid and it's also really hot and there's a lot of natural particulate. And so when you have the H, HVAC system running all winter yeah. long, or sorry, all, all summer long, yeah. you know, all the humidity come in and all the particulate come in and then flush around in all these weird cavities in your house and then yeah. get any water exposure on top of that, you just start getting mold growth. Mm. And you can test for it in your house, right? Yeah. Testing. I, I mean, I have a podcast release about this, but okay. be wary of almost every single testing company. If they just come in with a little thing and test, it, it doesn't work. And I mean, this again is the challenge that unless you open up every cavity in your house, how are you going to know? You can do these things called ERMI tests that are basically like you swipe a Swiffer pad on the ground, mm. get dust particles, and then send that in. They say, hey, you have these certain mycotoxins. The problem with that is that I did that after we remediated our house and super high, like, oh shit, we're going to have to move out of this place or sell it or something. And then I went outside, I'm like, let me see here. Again, I'm a very like mm-hmm. experimental type of person. <laughs> wipe the ground. We have an outdoor gym, wipe the ground in there. It looked the exact same. So, yeah. okay, like you, you, now it's not, it's not the problem in my house. Like this is just the environmental the, and there's, there's things like this where I present this logic to remediators or doctors I'm like, Hey, what do you think about this? And their brains explode. They, they don't know how to, to conceptualize that their test that they rely on to tell everybody that they have a mold problem like, was outside. Well, yeah. Like, <laughs> why aren't you test? Why aren't you getting a baseline for outside? Right. And this is the type of maddening stuff that happens when you go through this process. There's like 5,000 examples of things like that that have happened where I just asked the person, like, did you actually think through this, this logically and reasonably? <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's, it's, it's challenging. So like going through that while also being sick and not being able to think well. Yeah. Is, yeah, it's tough. Well, we could definitely keep going <laughs> for another hour, but um We'll, we'll cut it from there. I, I, uh, I'm, I'm glad to have you on. I, I guess maybe if you, if, if you want to give the listener, maybe one tip, I know we've had a ton of different tips, but I like to ask this to, to my guests, one tip to help, you know, let's say someone's in their 40, 50, 60s, and they want to maybe get their body back to what it once was to when they were in their twenties and thirties, what one tip would you give that individual? Ooh, <laughs> can I cheat and give it to you? All right. I'll let you get to. Okay. So first one is just go support your local farmer and eat, like know where your food comes from and do that. But second is, like I said before, just don't buy what anybody is selling over overall of like, don't listen to the influencers online. This is your own path. Look down to where your feet are, where you came from, where you want to go and chart your own path and like learn from what's possible with these people, but you are in control and Likely what any, anyone else did is not going to work for you. Just take ownership and do your own thing. Love that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on, uh, Dr. Anthony. And um, wh- where's the best place for people to find out what you're up to next? I know you got a lot of things going on. Yeah. Uh, I, I said just, <laughs> just Google my name, Anthony Gustin, whatever you want to follow, Twitter, Instagram, newsletter, podcast, it'll all come up. So whatever works best for you. Send me a question you've got. Yeah. And I appreciate you having me on, man. Yeah. Thanks so much. And have a great rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Get Lean, Eat Clean podcast. I understand there are millions of other podcasts out there and you've chosen to listen to mine. And I appreciate that. 
Check out the show notes at briangrin.com for everything that was mentioned in this episode. Feel free to subscribe to the podcast and share it with a friend or family member that's looking to get their body back to what it once was. Thanks again and have a great day.